Hey, it's Greg. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast for May 18th on a Wednesday. Get into a couple big issues on the show, uh, and I think you'll enjoy those particular monologues and uh, conversations as well. We'll talk to David Reevely about provincial politics, and we'll talk to our own Colin DeMello about provincial politics. Probably can't do too much of that 15 days before a provincial election where you may think you may know who's going to be the premier, but there's a lot of parameters around all of that with the numbers and some of the tactics over the next couple of weeks. So stay tuned. Toronto Today begins now. Let me start here today. And it's 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 on the COVID front. And you're thinking, oh, God, Brady, no, 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 no COVID. Everybody is so done with COVID. Well, that's my point. And if you are also relatively done, well, understanding there are still health concerns, well, understanding you got to measure your own your own sense of risk and your families and those around you and that an 80 year old is not a 40 year old is not a 10 year old. And we don't need blanket restrictions for all those people. And, and we probably didn't for more than, I don't know, the first five, six months of the pandemic. We're learning so much more, not about what we're going to do in the next six months, but what we should not have done for some of the previous 27. I saw this yesterday. This has two layers to it. The US FDA approved Pfizer's COVID-19 booster vaccine for kids age five to 11. Okay. Um, so that now the, this, that does not mean the CDC will make a blanket recommendation. People need to understand that, uh, that they have authorized you could give, if you so chose, a, a booster dose to kids 5 to 11. OK, some of those kids have not had a vaccine since uh, February or so. Um, I, I, you know, I don't know whether or not there's considerable demand for it, um, but against the Omicron variant, that's what this particular company, Pfizer, says is accurate. It'll be very, very difficult, as we've talked about before, to mandate those particular vaccines. What's the uptake? You might be wondering, oh, I don't hear the numbers anymore. I don't know about the numbers. 35.9% of, of kids in Ontario, 5 to 11, um, have had two doses. Remember, the dosing started around late November, around U.S. Thanksgiving time, went through December, and a lot of people got their kids their second shot, 5 to 11, uh, around late January, early February. In late February... Actually, this is the date I have. March 4th, 26% of kids in Ontario were vaccinated. So that means that's, that's been 10, 11 weeks ago. Only 9% of those kids in that age demo have gone back for a second shot from a first shot. And 43.5% of kids 5 to 11 have said, nah, or parents have said, nah, we're not doing it. We don't think there's, there's uh, you know, the, the benefits outweigh the risks. We don't think it's necessary. Maybe they've had Omicron. Good, good bet that they have, to be perfectly honest, given the last several months. We know this. So I, I think about that in the context of this is that Dr. Vinny Prasad is pretty well known in the States. Some of the people that we've have on have gone on his podcast, um, include Dr. Kira Manting, who we played a clip of last week at a, at a medical conference in California, uh, was on with Vinny Prasad a couple times. He walks the COVID floors. He is, uh, you know, he is not somebody speaking into a, a megaphone from afar. Doesn't do, doesn't do a ton of TV and radio media appearances, but he does control his own narrative via his own particular podcast. And he made this point yesterday that a law would be really good. And he called it the COVID Sunshine Act. And I reacted to that right away. And I'm like, well, I like the name of it right out of the gate. The COVID Sunshine Act, the CSA. The COVID Sunshine Act sounds better than the CSA. The CSA sounds like something that's going to 
that's going to take your money uh, at the end of the day. It's a little bit like Revenue Canada, the CRA, the CSA. You're just changing one letter. Here's what he thinks this should be. Anybody who sold a product for COVID, anybody who sold tests, anybody who sold pills should have to disclose every single person the company's paid money to. That's the, that makes sense to me to some extent. We have a sunshine list. I'm not sure sometimes about it and the level of privacy and sometimes big newspaper articles come out, come out. This company has X amount of employees on the sunshine list. I mean, public educators are on the sunshine list. I don't know. I, I, I don't know if that's awesome. Um, some pri- money is very private. Some people think it's the most private thing imaginable that you don't talk about with family members. You don't talk about when friends come over. No one, no one asks about uh, what a house costs. You don't really know somebody. What that house cost you? What about that hot tub? What's your salary? You don't have those conversations very often with people. But for a global pandemic, that actually might be helpful information uh, at the end of the day. The COVID Sunshine Act. Anybody who sold a product for COVID, test pills, should have to disclose every single person the company paid money to. Not just doctors. Not just drugs. And he writes, if the public saw that data, it would help explain a lot. Many people have said, uh, follow the science during the last 27 months. It was echoed. That phrase was echoed by Ontario Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca uh, the other night. And I admire some of Del Duca's platform, but not the forced vaccination of five to 11 year olds. The science isn't being followed when you are forcing parents, 43 percent who haven't got a vaccine yet, to say you can't go to school without two vaccines before September. You got three and a half months left to do that. So you're running out of time even with the efficacy waiting potentially to get them those second vaccines. Again, we're talking almost like a post-game COVID show. I'm well aware you're not interested in new variants. And I, I, I terribly am not either. We've heard all the phrases before. The vaccine is this. The vaccine is that. A lot of bad metaphors. Uh COVID isn't over yet. No, I'm well aware of that. It's going to be around for a good chunk of time. Some of us were telling you that, well, we put guests on the radio and guests on the television and guests here and there and government officials who actually thought we could crush COVID uh, into oblivion by stamping it into the ground because we would lock down and then the virus would not spread. And for the vaccines themselves, seems like, seems like to me, we're vaccinating right now with a vaccine that was meant for a previous strain of COVID. That's not to say they don't work. I do think they limit severity of illness, but they do very little to stop spread and stop infection. I asked Steve Pakin about this yesterday on the show uh, when we talked about the Monday debate with all the leaders. And funnily enough, um, the forced vaccination to go to school, which is in the Ontario liberal platform. Not a lot of liberal candidates talk about it. I don't know if you've noticed that. Only the leader. A lot of liberal candidates are like, oh, that, that guy, that, don't ask me about it. I've seen that. I've seen that anecdotally, and I've heard about it anecdotally. So it's a thing. And Steve Pakin said, yes, the candidates clearly know that the public is finished. Yeah, look, if these politicians, if there's one thing they know, it's that their parties do research on what the public's attitude about COVID-19 is right now. And we know from polls that the public has had it with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And they don't want to hear anything more about restrictions, and they want to get on with life. So you certainly weren't about to hear anybody now talk about future restrictions or or what we're going to have to do in that result. It did come up a little bit, COVID-19, in as much as we did a section on health care and Mr. Ford's um, taking, you know, taking care of us during the course of the COVID uh, situation. That did come up then. Uh, It came up during education as well when uh, a a number of the opposition leaders uh, went after Mr. Ford on the issue of 
uh, handling classrooms and so on and so forth. But uh, no, everybody wants to move on from COVID. Mm. And that uh, that rang loud and true last night. Here's in the last couple of minutes we have in this segment also something you should consider as to whether employers are ready to move on from COVID. And when I say that, I mean employers that want you to come back to your office. The headline in the New York Post yesterday, why remote workers are at risk of getting axed first in tech downturn. Did you see Netflix laid off people yesterday? 150. Many say that's the first of of many more layoffs to come at Netflix. Not as many people are subscribing. They're dealing with this password sharing issue. They shut down in a giant country in Russia. Well, uh, that's there's a bottom line there. And Netflix has to maintain a margin share for their stockholders. You probably are familiar with stockholders if you work for a big company. But here's the concept. Tech employees, and maybe this goes for other employees who work remotely, are going to get axed over their in-person colleagues as these places get squeezed by rising interest rates, plummeting stock price prices. The experts say, and I'm quoting the article, techies looking to hold on to their jobs should consider ditching their pajamas and getting back into the office if they want to hold on to their jobs. Vinny Prasad, who I referenced earlier, made this very point about Zoom, this very point that many of us have made, that in a pandemic in 1986, let's say, and not 2020, uh, schools are open more. Universities are open more. If we didn't have the technology to make life a little easier, we would have gutted it out and said, you're not going anywhere. It's safe to come into work if you're going to restaurants and ball games on airplanes and all the rest. Here's what Vinny Prasad said about it. Zoom is what allowed a lot of upper middle class white collar workers to not get laid off. If you had this yes. 15 years ago and you stopped showing up to work, you'd get laid off. Now with Zoom, you could keep your jobs. The moment upper middle class white collar workers could keep their jobs, they just frankly stopped caring about actually putting resources into things that would matter. The people who are working as line cooks in the kitchen who are doing construction, uh, that became uh, a matter of, uh, of moral failure. We said that, you know, it's up to them to stay in their own house, uh, mm. never mind the fact that they need to go in person and work while we could comfortably have our jobs uh, by not going in person. Now, you and I, of course, are different because we're doctors. You know, I, I went in person throughout the whole pandemic, but um, I think Zoom actually um, trapped us in this response. It made us more polarized, um, pushed us towards individual responsibility and not what public health really means, which is resources. Now, I got news for you, and I owe you honesty by being here and talking into a microphone to you and you giving me your time. I got I give you effort and I give you data and I give you responsible uh, stories, not a, lot of, not a lot of glam, and you give me your time. It's a good trade-off. So I'm going to be honest with you. That clip isn't from last week or last month. That clip's from the summer of 2021. But you thought it was right now because it's as true now as it was then. And I'll leave you with this quote. Michael Solomon manages software engineers and tech executives through a talent firm called 10 Times Management. And he told the Post for this story, remote work is a, quote, great tiebreaker for bosses deciding which employees to lay off. If I'm evaluating who I'm going to get rid of, I might choose to keep the person who's in the office and is near me all the time. The Buffalo shooting. Uh, a, a long Twitter thread by a professor at Queens University, uh, Amarneth Amarasingham. And uh, it, it's one of those situations where I, I want to get his perspective on this. Um, thanks very much for making the time. And it's obviously a massively important topic. And we noticed your Twitter thread and we've been trying to have you on the show for a while. So thanks for making the time. Yeah, thanks for having me. No problem. You mentioned it, that this one more so than others, and they are frequent um, terrorist attacks like this, often involving young white males, often 
some hit you harder than uh, than a few others. Um, why did this one in particular grab you? Why, why is it grabbing all of us? Obviously, the proximity to, to Ontario and Canada. We feel Buffalo is almost a suburb, um, you know, of uh, of the GTA in a way. And a lot of Ontario, there are neighboring state um, is that, is geography, something to do with it. Or is there more than that for you? Um, I mean, I've read through his manifesto and I've read through, you know, 589 pages of his discord diary, which is a kind of day by day underlining of his thought process and his surveillance uh, of some of these stores. And I think what bothered me is kind of, you know, what, what's what's called the banality of evil of all of this. Right. It, it's just so uh, mundane and bureaucratic almost. Um, and, you know, then you stop for a second and you realize he's basically plotting a mass murder, right? But it's it's very almost like spreadsheet-like in terms of how how he uh, thinks through this. So that that bothered me quite a bit. And and then then it's the victims, you know. The, we we often don't um, we often think about the attacker more than the those attacked. And I think in this case there there were some um, important stories that came to light. You know, the father just shopping for a birthday cake for his three year old and and cut down. And um, so stories like that are, are quite heartbreaking. And, uh, you know, so some of these attacks, you know, all attacks are heartbreaking, of course, but some of them just have these kind of uh, stories attached to them, which uh, which linger, I think, longer than others. You referenced the fact that um, his goal was certainly not to die a, a martyr, but to watch uh, this uh, from prison and see the reaction to it. We're losing kids somewhere. We're losing kids of a certain demographic somewhere. I'm going to go there in a minute, but I want to read you something quick that I brought up Monday on the show from from Andrew Yang, who was the presidential candidate. Obviously, he said this November 2019 at one of the debates. We have to, as a country, start finding ways to turn our boys into healthy, strong young men who do not hate, but instead feel like they have passed forward. Do you see any way to put the brakes on on all the things we're talking about here and uh, and prevent some of this radicalization? Yeah, I mean, I think it goes back to, you know, putting resources into things that matter, right? Um, uh, helping our youth, social work, um, after-school programs, um, giving giving young people something to look forward to. And I think um, we, we've had a history of defunding all of those things. We've had a history of stripping a lot of social services and, and a lot of, um, you know, things that young people used to find meaning in. Um, and then we're shocked that this uh, the, that this kind of stuff happens. And let's not forget the gun culture in the U.S., right? I mean, there, there's the, the fact that an 18-year-old, I mean, his dad, I guess, bought it and he took it or something. But um, we've seen several instances where somebody who had a criminal record or who had, uh, you know, a serious mental illness was able to buy a, a, a very uh, militarized weapon very easily. Um, and so... Uh, you know, nobody wants to talk about that in the U.S. because it's always deflected. And as Tucker Carlson did on, uh, I think, last night's show, oh, it's a, it's a, you know, a mentally ill white teenager or something like that. Um, but, but there, there are kind of core issues here that need to be uh, dealt with, which often aren't, and it, and that's what I think leads to these more simplistic explanations for why these things happen. Um, but. Yeah, reinvesting in our young people is is key, right? And and I think a lot of these services have been um, stripped away, and um, uh, prevention mechanisms in in the radicalization space don't get that much funding, right? And they're, they're severely under resourced. Um, it's very hard to convince a young person that something is wrong with them. Uh, how inter interventions actually work in this space is very difficult. Um, and and so uh, and and the, and the Buffalo case is interesting in that sense too. Is that it seems, at least from what we know so far, he is in his house, on 4chan, on these different websites, keeping a very meticulous diary on Discord, but no real sense that he's making it known to anybody, right? And so um, 
what are there some of the red flags that we could have caught right and and so mm-hmm. should his mom when he when he said you know i just beheaded a cat should his mom have done something um when the security guard at the grocery store that he was surveilling over and over again came up to him at a few points and said what are you doing should something else have been done right and so there there are numerous instances where i think um because he was a white young person um nothing was done about it if he was a person of color walking around a grocery store taking pictures i suspect it would have probably been dealt with differently um and so i think some of our biases of what an extremist looks like what a terrorist looks like um also feeds into how these guys are able to fall, fall through the cracks and actually start uh, doing things. I, I think that's I think that's happening to a fair bit, because I think about many of these rampages that that you document and and we've spoke about on our show, like in New Zealand, like the killer in Norway. Um, yeah, like e- evil is evil. But then we think about, you know, the Manchester Arena bombing um, during the Ariana, Ariana Grande concert. Or we think about the Boston Marathon bombing and different demographics but we're yeah we're looking for different things sometimes and and sometimes yeah the answers are are right in front of our own our own communities and and we're not spotting them yeah and i think um we're we're very accustomed that law enforcement is changing a little bit but we're very accustomed to seeing terrorism through an al-qaeda lens right so it has to look uh, a certain way not just in terms of being a person of color but also uh, a particular kind of organization, a particular kind of hierarchy. There has to be a leadership. Um, there has to be someone like Bin Laden financing things. It doesn't. That kind of thing doesn't exist anymore, right? It, these are much more uh, freewheeling, nebulous networks online, uh, movements online. Sometimes no leaders. No, you know, there's no hierarchy. It's just a person on their computer, um, slowly chipping away at things. And so, uh, the way to monitor some of that. Uh, becomes much more difficult. Um, and, and But, you know, one of the funny things that happened that he he talks about in his own diary is uh, Discord, where he was posting all of this, actually flagged his account because he had uploaded the Christchurch manifesto uh, onto, onto the platform. But then again, nothing was done, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and so the, he, he, you know, they noticed that, oh, that this manifesto which they had banned from the platform someone had tried to upload it so they sent him an email or something saying you know you're not allowed to do this but no one thought to ask a secondary question about why he was doing that or anything like that so they're not easy policy choices no and and yeah i know we can't solve them talking in in 10 or 11 minutes but you're right it's one of those scenarios where where i think we look and we say you know there almost has to be a short-term approach uh and then there has to be a long-term approach and and nobody nobody wants it to backfire nobody wants to be and, and again, you make a political mistake if you label an entire group at, at it'll galvanize them if you label them as something they're not. I, I, I'm no um, I'm no supporter of the uh, Freedom Convoy, but I know they stayed a lot longer and got a lot more entrenched because, A, nobody moved them for the first week. And B, I think I think there were politicians that just labeled them all in, in the same box and, and some belonged to that box and some didn't. And four weeks later, you, you got to clear them out. Yeah. No, I, I mean, uh, the convoy is another good example is the, the kind of populist rhetoric. They a, a lot of the slogans that were thrown at them uh, by Trudeau and others, you know, they put it on T-shirts and wore it around. Right. And and so mm. they, they, they kind of embodied uh, this anti-government, anti-elitist uh, identity um, and, and carried that to its final conclusion. I mean, I think, they, they, yeah, to, to kind of demonize the entire group um, is quite dangerous. And I, I was pushing back against that from the beginning. I think, you know, that there was on, on Twitter, especially people were calling the convoy like, 
a far right convoy, a neo-Nazi rally, and all these things. And I was like, you know, we're four, you know, two two years into the pandemic, uh, multiple lockdowns. There are people who have committed suicide, lost their small businesses. Um, there, there's reason to be upset, and there, there's reason to kind of come together and yell. Um, but mm-hmm. um, once it, once I think it was unearthed that you know a lot of the organizers were basically far right activists themselves. Um, then it becomes a different situation, but. Um, the, the the anger at public policy shouldn't be where we draw the line uh, on on where our discourse should go as a country. No, uh, Amarna uh, Amara Singham, thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate it. Um, uh, a fan of your work, and uh, and thanks for making time for our show here in Toronto. For sure, anytime. Uh, let's bring on uh, David Reevely, Ottawa reporter for The Logic, uh, who joined us last week and joins us uh, again here as we get that much closer to Election Day. David, I haven't weighed in with you and and uh, don't know since the debate, but um, any winners, any losers, any knockout punches? I thought it had good energy and was entertaining. I liked a lot of the one on one stuff. How would you uh, how would you give it a, a Siskel and Ebert review Monday night? What did you see? <laughs> Uh, I think for you know quality of the debate, I think it was a thumbs up. I think it was well moderated and it was well structured uh, in a way that let the the leaders kind of go at each other a little bit, but not too much. Just a few moments where they were all talking over each other and uh, Pekin and Raj had to say, knock it off. Uh, I think coming out of that, I think, I mean, as often happens in these things, the, the leader with the least chance of actually winning uh, the overall election showed best. I think Mike Schreiner with the Greens was really impressive. Uh, I think he, he talked with passion. I think he showed that he knows his stuff. Uh, and his his plea toward the end was send more Green MPPs uh, to Queen's Park if you want you know, us to do good work. But the best that he can hope for realistically is to hold the balance of power in a minority government. And even that's improbable. Uh, the other leaders, I think... They sort of, they did what they set out to do. I think Stephen Del Duca was cool, uh, very kind of policy forward. But if uh, you're a liberal supporter, chances are that's the kind of thing you like. Uh, I think Andrea Horvath, I mean, she's very familiar. She's she's not a great debater, but she knows mm-hmm. what she's doing when, when she's up there and uh, spoke to a lot of the, the, the failures that she sees in the Ford government. And I think Ford, I mean, he, he sort of has one debate mode, which is incredulousness. <laughs> Uh, you know, he's incredulous at how amazing his own party is and incredulous at how awful everybody else is. He kind of comes across like all this stuff, look at it. And it was that the entire time, but, uh, he has been the premier. So, uh, it works for him. And I think they all kind of did what they intended to do. It was fine. It wasn't fantastic, but the actual debate structure was good. We got to see the people and they brought they're A games and their A games are what they are. I can't believe you. Yeah. You, the incredulous, I never thought of as a, as an adjective. And now I'm picturing it. I'm like, it, it is very much like uh, a policy will get criticized. And be like, I can't believe you're saying this about me. Like not a lot of marriages would last that long. If that was how the partners reacted to each <laughs> other, I'll say that. That's true. Yeah. Uh, but if you have a majority government, <laughs> it's not at all like being in a marriage. Well, well, that's the thing. We're in like, let's say we're in the tenth round of a of a of a title title fight here for boxers, and he can kind of dance around the ring a little bit. He does not, and it's clearly obvious. He knows this. He doesn't need to make up ground, David, and he doesn't need to land any punches. He needs to avoid knockout punches because he's ahead on points by a lot. Yeah, although there's been a little bit of tightening in some of the polls in the last couple of days. Uh, some, I mean, you don't see it reflected in the overall averages yet because there, there hasn't been enough of them, but there are certainly signs of 
the progressive conservatives falling potentially out of majority territory and into minority. And that's a dangerous place for them to be. Uh, I say minority territory because probably I think it'd be really tough for any other party to sign up for a, a Ford minority government. Uh, I think you know the the and uh, liberal NDP uh, cooperation is what you'd be much more likely to see. So I think you know he he doesn't just have to win; he's got to win by a lot. And at the moment, that doesn't seem like a sure thing. Which is a long way from saying that they're going to lose uh, the door is going to lose the election, but he's ahead on points, but not by as much as I think he'd like to be. I remember, I mean, I remember 1985, even though you and I were much, much younger and that, and that yeah. concept of a coalition government, but it wasn't whispered about that much. The, 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 the conservatives ran, uh, uh, ran out, uh, Frank Miller, who was an older veteran cabinet minister from, um, Bill Davis's government. Um, and he still had, he ended up with 52 seats, David Peterson at 48, Bob Ray at 25. But to your point, um, there's a, there feels like there's more open talk, not among Horvath and Del Duca, because they want as many votes as, and seats as each of their parties can get if this doesn't materialize. But it does feel like it's out there more. And I can't tell if that's just the the politics, the political era we live in, David, or that's that's seeing Singh and Trudeau do what they did to some extent. But it does seem like that would happen if there was a minority government. Yeah, and I mean that's the only way anything gets done is is I mean I, I talk about a, a the a cooperation between the liberals and the New Democrats wouldn't have to be explicit by any means. Uh, you know, Dalton McGuinty had a minority government for uh, a while, and that lasted until the New Democrats uh, decided to bring down ultimately Kathleen Wynne, his successor, and went to an election and turned out badly for them. Um, but when you know no one party has most of the seats, the only way a place gets governed in Canada is through either point by point cooperation or something more formal like we've we've seen federally. Mm-hmm. But you know, minority governments are not you know, they were weird for the longest time. We had a sort of a generation where it was majorities, majorities, majorities everywhere you looked. But we've had them federally a lot. Many of the provinces have had them uh over the last 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. They're they're it's just it's normal. Uh, we, we lived in a, in a in, when I think you and I were kind of be, first really beginning to pay close attention. They were rare, but they're not now. David Reilly's our guest, covers the Ontario government for The Logic, joining us on Toronto today. Uh, is there a performance that would be unacceptable to liberal brass from Stephen Del Duca? I look and I think he's got a good scenario here. He he does need to win his own seat. There's no doubt about that. But rising it up from seven to twenty five or seven to thirty, he's got the enviable position to me, David, of like to use a sports analogy of of taking over the worst NFL team or or having the first <laughs> overall pick in the NHL. Like you're only going to get better when you start with seven seats. There's a lot more pressure for a result for, on Andrea Horvath, given this is her fourth election. Does Stephen Del Duca have any performance where people would say he's not the guy and we need to make a quick change after it's all over? Uh, I mean, if he loses his own seat and the Liberals only add a couple more, uh, yeah, as, as you say, he doesn't need to set the world on fire, but he he if he can't improve noticeably from uh, you know practically all-time worst performance last time, then mm-hmm. that's probably a bad sign for them, and especially if he doesn't win his own seat. Uh, but it would be tough. And certainly from what we're seeing in the polls, even you know, if if, uh, if the, the trends don't continue and accelerate, uh, we're seeing the Liberals certainly you know, 20, 25, 30 seats, but potentially uh, forming the official opposition. I think that they can, you know, it's not a, not a win-win, mm-hmm. but I think they could count that as, as good enough. 
Horvath, though, this is what her fourth election. Uh, she hit a high watermark last time uh, for the New Democrats so far. We're certainly beginning to hear talk of uh, as in um, that's a specialty publication, Queen's Park Briefing, I think, uh, that you know, it, her party, significant people in her party are saying she doesn't do it this time, then she's got to go. Yeah. Uh, and there are too many parties where you get five kicks at the can and the uh the the ones where you see it are basically ones where they don't have anyone else like i don't know how many leaders the communist party has had but you tend to see the same person again and again and again and again and again and again and again because there's nobody else uh new democrats they've got they've got a match mm. i can understand them wanting to make a change i got about a minute do you look and say that was very much a post-covid election steve Pakin, who we had on yesterday who moderated as you noted agreed that the, the, the they've obviously done the polling in the NDP and Liberals. So no matter how much there was sort of pleased to keep masks on or let's do this two more weeks back in the middle of March, I think they've seen that ship sail. They were not about restrictions. They were not about, uh, you know, a roadmap in case of scary new variant return. Not a word of that from Del Duca or Horvath on, on Monday night. No, nothing. And not even very much about uh, past performance. Certainly some. And probably Del Duca's strongest line of the night was about... Uh, uh, playgrounds and police, the, right? Ford government. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, just how we let the province down. And I think a year ago that would have been super strong. I, I mean, I think the electorate is a little beyond where I am personally on this, on this stuff because Omicron is still out there. There's still 150 people in ICU today, uh, mm -hmm. in this province. Uh, you know, people are still getting sick. People are still dying, but, uh, it, yeah, this, this election, we're not hearing very much about yeah. any of that. That's for sure. David, thanks so much. Let's uh, let's let's make a date and check in next week uh, as we get that much closer. Really like your analysis. Oh, thanks so much. Glad to do it. You bet, David Reevely. Uh, David Reevely from uh, the Logic. I look at the polls every day. I look at what's needed uh, from the governments. The big statement from Stephen Del Duca yesterday was, I'm the only leader that can topple the Ford government. Um, the math certainly more favors the NDP as we see some of the polls as to being the party that could do it. Let's check in uh, with, of course, Global News uh, Queens Park Bureau Chief Colin DeMello uh, and get his thoughts and uh, on where the uh, where the where we all stand 15 days from now. It's great to have you on uh, Toronto today. I know the other shows are are uh, are getting a lot of minutes out of you. They are, uh, you know, it's like 44 minutes of a 48 minute NBA game. So it's great to have you on with us. My pleasure. Happy to be here. Uh, give me a sense as well. The NDP, uh, I know you and uh, um, you and a couple others did note the famous quote, the NDP saying they're 10 seats away. They've been using that in a lot of literature, Colin. They've been using that in a lot of messaging, especially in close ridings. But that's not to consider that they need to hold a lot of their own seats that the liberals themselves, who I just mentioned, are hoping to grab back from them that they won in 2018. Right. The NDP keeps saying that they're 10 seats away, 10 seats away. All they need are 10 seats. And, and, and we, we wanted to kind of figure out exactly what they meant by that. What do you mean 10 seats? Because, um, you know, to form a majority government in Ontario, you need 63 seats in total. So here's their calculation. They're saying if they hold on to the 40 seats they won in the 2018 election and add another 10 seats, that would put them in the position to be able to head up a minority government. Now, they would need Stephen Del Duca's mm -hmm. liberals to win uh, a handful of seats. They would need the Green to cooperate with them as well. And so this would be, you know, three parties working together um, to topple the Ford government. Uh, so the pitch they're making, Greg, is to those voters mm -hmm. whose sole focus in this election is change. Right. And that's 60 percent of voters in Ontario are saying that they're going to vote 
for a party that's not the progressive conservatives. So the NDP are saying, come to us. We're the only ones who are the closest to that goal line. Uh, we can do it with a minority government with the other parties, but we're the only ones who can actually get us uh, closest to that. And it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, you know, the pandemic, I think, has favored incumbents, whether they lean left or right. When I look at elections across the globe, if, if we look out to B.C., we look at, at, at even though the presidency changed, a lot of uh, senators and, and congressmen and congresswomen held their ridings because the, there's that sense of alarm that the pandemic brought us. But, Colin, when I look and I see the Ford government won 76 seats and they lost nine of those seats through either attrition, people not coming back. They obviously kicked more people than usual out of caucus. And a lot of it was either vaccine related or pandemic policy related. Like that was a bonus for the NDP and liberals. But as you know, a lot of the polls are showing that's not a bonus they're going to be able to take advantage of potentially. And that is a big question, right? Why has the NDP not been able to capitalize on you know, the last four years. And, and if you take a look at the last four years, you know, you kind of take that 5,000 foot view. It has been really chaotic, right? We've had uh, three cabinet, uh, sorry, three finance ministers over a four year period. We've had a chief of staff who uh, had to resign under scandal. We've had multiple scandals. Remember the whole thing about trying to appoint Ron Taveter as the head of the mm-hmm. OPP. Uh, then we had the pandemic and the ups and downs during the pandemic response. And after all of that, you would think that people who are looking for the alternative would have turned to uh, the second party uh, in the Ontario legislature, the NDP. But their polls have really started to tank um, you know, lower than the liberals. The key here, though, is they seem to have concentration or efficiency of their vote. So there are they may be able to pick up a lot of ridings, even though they are lower than the liberals and the liberals. You know, a lot of their ridings, uh, their voter support might be concentrated in uh, the Toronto and the Ottawa region, Mm. which means they're not going to pick up as many seats, even though they're still riding high in the polls, because the support might not be as high in other parts of the province enough to topple the progressive conservatives or the NDP. Colin DeMello is our guest on Toronto today. I mean, I got two just sitting in Toronto right now that are very Toronto centric. One is Suze Morrison, who's leaving uh, Toronto Centre right now. 338 Canada project projects David Morris to win for the Liberals there. So that's a Liberal gain. And somebody you and I both know um, from his presence during the pandemic in Toronto St. Paul's, Dr. Nathan Stahl, uh, is projected right now to potentially steal a seat away from Jill Andrew, who's a really prominent NDP MPP. Like, those are two big potential losses. We know the Liberals weren't going to hold at seven seats. There were going to be some gains. But the, the NDP were hoping the Liberals would steal from the Conservatives, not them. Well, and this is why the NDP math you know, is a little sketchy, to be honest, because mm-hmm. Um, you have to take a look at what the progressive conservatives are targeting. They are really going after Brampton very hard. And uh, according to that same projection from 338, Brampton could be a PC suite. Yeah. Uh, they're going after Windsor really hard. It, uh, the Ford government had announced investments in hospitals, a battery uh, manufacturing facility, uh, an electric vehicle manufacturing facility. They're literally pouring billions of dollars into that region, uh, not to mention that when the Ambassador Bridge was shut down, that was what got uh, the Ford uh, progressive conservatives kind of off the sidelines, and they took action declaring a state of emergency. So they really are focused on those NDP seats. And I, I made that argument to the NDP, well, so how are you so sure you're going to win all 40 seats? And they just seem confident, blindly confident. Um, and they don't think that the PCs will be able to pull away Windsor. They they know that uh, Essex, as an example, an NDP seat, will be competitive. 
they know that the 905, uh, Branton and Mississauga, will be competitive. Um, but their calculation banks on them holding all of their 40 seats, and that is just an impossibility because in the 2018, there was an anti-win vote. Big time. And they either went PC or they went NDP. And some of those people are just going to come back uh, to where they naturally lie, and that could be the liberals. Yeah, like I've got a real toss-up. I live out in Ajax, so that was, you'd know this really well, that was Rod Phillips riding. He decides, I'm not going to run again. Uh, and so it's very wide open. You'd remember the NDP put forward former Mayor Steve Parrish, and there was uh, you know, a Nazi street sign uh, that that uh, that honored a, a former Nazi sea captain, and he's out of the race. So right now, that looks like a liberal conservative toss up. But that was almost for sure. Like Rod Phillips gets out of the way in Ajax, the liberals and NDP were salivating, but the conservatives could still hold out there. They could still hold out out there, although you know Rod Phillips left in about February, not really giving the uh, uh, the new candidate there enough time. He is a community organizer, the new candidate there, mm-hmm. but he, so he might be able to pull out the vote. Um, it, it, you know, it, it really does depend. I'll give you another example. Perry Sound Muskoka is a really good good one, right? Okay. Uh, we're either looking at going what PC or, or or liberal or NDP, but the Greens they feel like they have a real good shot there because. The incumbent progressive conservative candidate um, decided that he's no longer going to run. So they've got the local Bracebridge mayor, Graydon Smith, uh, running there instead. So the Greens are seeing, okay, well, maybe we could pull a little bit of the vote away from uh, the progressive conservatives. But then the liberal candidate, he was, you know, ejected by the party. So they have no liberal candidate in Perry Sound, Muskoka. And in the past few elections, the liberal candidate has taken yeah. anywhere between 25 to um, 8% of the support. Now that's up for grabs. So, a- again, getting back to this NDP calculation, does it all make sense if the Greens are in play in certain ridings? I don't know. I mean, in some ridings, this could really be a toss-up for um, for all four parties. And, the, and you know, Perry Samuskoka will be the most interesting I'm one. I'm so think. glad you brought that up because, yeah, the Greens are polling there at 29%, the NDP at 20 And, and yeah, you got to be looking around going, we should be able to make a lot of ground up with no liberal candidate. But not the case right now. Hey, let's let's do this again uh, a few more times before June 2nd, Colin. I love hearing uh, your other chats on the other shows, and we're happy to have you aboard. Would love that. Thanks, Greg. Thanks for listening to Toronto Today. Back with a live show tomorrow between 5.30 and 9 a.m. You can hear us on the Radio Player Canada app and, of course, at 640toronto.com.